Church, uh, over the next four weeks, we are going to continue what's become a little annual tradition here at Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church and uh, engage in a book study together. And this year, I hold the book in my hand, uh, which is called Mere Christianity by the British author C.S. Lewis. Um, if you've not got a hold of one of these, you can download a free PDF version online, by the way. Uh, we are going to read the first ten chapters. You are not behind at all because we're just... Starting right now. Everybody still feel good? Don't want anybody to feel like they forgot their homework. All right. Um, a few words to set this book in its context and uh, to describe the life of the author, uh, which is very germane to what is uh, within the covers of this book. C.S. Lewis, or Clive Staples Lewis, um, was born in the 1800s, 1898, and he lived until November 22nd, 1963, and his death was almost not noticed and pretty much instantly forgotten because that is the same day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. So even in the Christian world, uh, his death uh, was overwhelmed by this bigger news. Um, C.S. Lewis, he is British and brilliant. Uh, he has one of the most well-ordered and creative minds of the last century. He was born in Ireland. Uh, he was raised there. He was raised um, an Irish Catholic. And uh, one little story from his childhood, um, he had a dog that he loved very much named Jackie. And uh, when he was four or five years old, this dog ran out into the street and was struck and killed by an automobile. And in the aftermath of that, uh, little Clive Staples Lewis would only respond to his parents if they called him Jackie, the dog's name. He so loved and identified with that dog, and for the rest of his life, he was known as Jack. So his name is Clive, his dog died, and forevermore he became Jack. Now, I mention this because of all the um, academic and learned works that C.S. Lewis has written, probably the most famous thing that he's composed are children's stories, called the Chronicles of Narnia, in which there's an imaginary world inhabited by talking animals. And already from age four, this little guy was already kind of thinking and imagining himself to be a talking animal. C.S. Lewis began to lose his faith as an adolescent. And as a 19-year-old, he was sent to fight in the trenches of World War I. His two best friends were killed. He was wounded in trench warfare and came home utterly not believing in God after the horrors and the harm that he had seen in the world. He went to college in Britain. He became a professor. And in the case of Jack or C.S. Lewis, God began to work on his spirit through the life of his mind. By age 32, he became convinced that God was not only real, but that he was good that Jesus walked the earth, and that Jesus was the one who had paid the price for his sins and all the wrongs of the world. And from that moment on, he became one of Christianity's um, best thinkers and defenders and uh, creative minds. Later in C.S. Lewis's life, he was living um, in London, teaching at Oxford, later at Cambridge, and while London was being bombed by Hitler's Luftwaffe, 57 straight nights, 
German bombs were dropped on London. Over 40,000 inhabitants of London were killed. 40,000. More than a million homes were destroyed. And during that period, uh, the British government, through the BBC, asked C.S. Lewis to come on the radio and offer regular um, programs to the British people um, about hope or what the nature of faith was all about. And over the course of two years, uh, C.S. Lewis did exactly that. These were much appreciated and uh, encouraged the British spirit in the midst of World War II. This is what uh, Sir Donald Hardman, a chief air marshal, said in 1944. The war, the whole of our life, everything seems pointless. And we so need, many of us, a key to the meaning of the universe. And that is what C.S. Lewis is providing for us. So the content of those radio talks that were given over airwaves in the UK were later edited and consolidated by C.S. Lewis into this book called Mere Christianity. So lest you think this was written by some really smart guy in an ivory tower somewhere, this was written by a guy who was a soldier himself who was trying to talk to um, his fellow citizens in the middle of the darkest hours of their national history. You feel that a little bit? This guy means it. Now, there are big ideas in this book. And because C.S. Lewis is a very wise man, I'm going to stick very closely to his mighty train of thought. So the, the title of this book, Mere Christianity, has this curious little word, mere what does he mean by mere Christianity? If you look up that word in the dictionary, the first thing you'll find is that the word mere is used to say something about someone or something that is small or important. For example, if I hired you to do a job and I offered uh, in payment for that job a mere pittance to you, would you want to do that job for a mere pittance? Of course not. Or if you know, there was a big job to do, and you know, a four-year-old was trying to do it. You might say, don't give that job to a four-year-old. They're a mere child. So is that what C.S. Lewis means about Christianity? It's small, seemingly meaningless, unimportant, not quite enough? Of course not. That is not what he means by mere Christianity. There is a uh, second and less used definition of mere which is used when something may seem small or understated, but when it has a hugely important or significant consequence or result. For example, um, say a young man is in love, he makes a fool of himself, and his friends are like, why did you do that? He could say, I'm merely in love, right? Which is not to say I just like her a little bit, but it's to say, if you understand that it's simply about love, that it's essentially about love, that I love this girl so much that I'm, I'll do anything. That is the kind of mirror that C.S. Lewis means when he says mere Christianity, essential Christianity, core Christianity, what Christians really in all times and all places have held in common. During these next four weeks, you will either hear the words of the Lord's Prayer or the words of the Apostles' Creed in our worship services. 
Because these are familiar words that Christians really in all times and places have held together, and they get very near what C.S. Lewis is talking about when he says, or titles his book, Mere Christianity. So today we are going to follow in his footsteps and track his thoughts in the first two chapters of this book. C.S. Lewis starts with this very simple but big idea, which I will put this way. We, and people everywhere, have a basic sense of right and wrong. Human beings, no matter where you go, have a basic sense of fair play, how to treat one another, and a basic sense of right and wrong. For example, if you go out for uh, slices of pizza with your friends in any corner of the United States of America, you're eating a cheese slice, your buddy's eating a pepperoni slice. If you cut a little piece off and offer your, uh, you know, a piece of your cheese pizza to your buddy, what is the right thing for them to do? Offer you a slice of pepperoni in return, right? No matter where you go, the sense of if I give you something, we'll share with each other. We don't just take it. Oh, thanks for the cheese pizza. You can have none of mine. People everywhere know that's wrong. Let me give you another example from Chicagoland. When someone allows you to merge into traffic on a cramped highway during rush hour, hopefully you will return the favor for a subsequent driver somewhere along the line. Right? This is just treating each other rightly and fairly and with basic respect. Do it, people. Now, the sense that C.S. Lewis, this basic sense of fair play or right and wrong, does not mean that we all have a perfect sense or a crystal clear sense of right and wrong. This basic sense of right and wrong does not solve situations when life gets complicated. So you're out for pizza with a buddy. Well, you're at a party. There's two slices left. You get a tiny little slice and like three bites max. Your buddy gets a slice that probably has like 22 bites out of it. They give you a bite and then says, hey, can I have a bite of your pizza? What's the right thing to do? Well, that's a little more complicated because you have uneven things to share to begin with. It's a little harder situation. Or, what do you do <clears throat> when you merge smoothly into traffic because of the good graces of one of your lovely fellow Chicagoland drivers? But then there comes a late merger. You know, one of those people that speeds by 80 cars, and then they want to pull right in front of you. Now, someone has just let you in, but this late merger, should you be kind and respectful and generous to them, or should they get what's coming to them? What's your moral obligation? Okay, so there's this universal basic sense of right and wrong, but life is complex. And that, in a nutshell, is why we fight, why we quarrel, why we disagree. <coughs> Rarely, if ever, C.S. Lewis points out, will you find somebody at a pizza party who just says, there is no such thing as right and wrong, give me all the pizza. Rarely, if ever, will you find someone so rude that they will not only be a late merger, but just willy-nilly cause accidents of other people that yield to them. We just don't find people who say right and wrong don't exist. And if you ever find somebody who says that, take their pizza pizza and see how quickly they respond to you. Right? We might say it until someone wrongs us. 
Now the Bible itself sums up this universal sense of right and wrong quite simply in the Ten Commandments, in which, in particular, the last five have to do with the sense of right and wrong and human social behavior and how we treat each other. There's no better summary in human history of this basic sense of right and wrong from Exodus chapter 20. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't break faith, right? Don't steal. Don't take what isn't yours. Don't give false testimony about your neighbor. Don't lie. Don't covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Don't even wish that someone else's life was your life and diminish yourself by wanting their stuff in their existence. This is the best summary of human ethics on the market, I believe. Sharing pizza? It's all about stealing, right? Are you stealing someone else's pizza or are, you, are we doing this fairly? Merging? It's really about coveting other people's time and space. Are you willing to give and take? What does it feel like when someone else just covets your space and then takes it? The worst things that have ever happened to you, I would humbly submit, are when someone has broken one of these fundamental ethical agreements that humans have and which God has given to us. The worst things that have happened in your life, the most painful things, are when someone has broken one of those commandments at your expense. And if you have regret over something that you have said or done in life, I would humbly submit, you can probably trace it that you have violated one of those five principles right there and our basic sense of right and wrong. Jesus himself, when he talked about the law and the sense of right and wrong and the way it was summarized in the Old Testament, Jesus summarized it even further. Sometimes it's called the golden rule, this basic sense of fair play. You know the golden rule? The golden rule, as I've done quite a bit of reading on this this last two weeks, appears in every time, space, and human culture, I believe, that has ever been under the sun. Let's see if you recognize these words. This is from ancient Egypt, 2,000 years before Christ. That which you hate to be done to you, don't do that to anyone else. Here's a quote from Confucius in ancient China. Never impose on other human beings what you do not choose for yourself. Sounding familiar yet? Here's from ancient Greece, 400 years before Christ, Isocrates. Do not do to others that which angers you when they do it to you. Ancient India, Persia, everywhere, the golden rule appears. Jesus' way of putting it is this. Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, basic sense of right and wrong. Do to others what you would have them do to you. I would point out the significant difference. All the ancient quotes I gave you of the golden rule, they state it negatively. Don't do to other people what you don't want done to you. 
Notice that Jesus flips it over and puts it positively. Do to other people that which you would prefer and love to have done to you, which is a much taller order, right? If you put it negatively, you just need to restrain yourself from stealing when you want to steal. You just need to bite your tongue when you feel like lying for your own benefit. I mean, that's hard enough as it is, don't get me wrong. But Jesus calls forth something more. So if you love to be listened to, you should really try to grow in the art of listening to other people. Right? If you love it when people make space for you in traffic, you should go out of your way to generously make room for other people. Oh. <laughs> Do you feel how much harder that is than just restraining yourself? That Jesus' command is to go about the world positively promoting that which we love to receive and have done to us. Now, here's what this passage looks in my New International Version Bible. Okay, this is um, part of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 7. Can I get the next slide? So, Jesus says, Do unto others what you'd have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And then, in my Bible, the editors have put in a new section called The Narrow and the Wide Gates. And whenever I read through the Sermon on the Mount, I come to these sections, and part of my brain makes a transition because the editors have put these sections in. And I think, okay, now Jesus is, of course, saying something new. Or maybe they ate lunch and they came back, and now Jesus is going to say something new and different. You with me on this? So this part that says the narrow and the wide gates, the editors put that in. But here's what I think. Jesus says, do unto others as you would have it done to you. And then what if Jesus said immediately afterwards, knowing how hard it is to live with this basic sense of right and wrong, what if right after Jesus says, do unto others, he says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many, many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Here's what I think. Jesus says, do unto others, and then in commenting on how hard that is, to be a law-abiding, righteousness-seeking, good-doing human being. Jesus is like, it's so hard, nobody can do it. It's like entering through a narrow gate. But if you want to do wrong, if you want to lie, if you want to be faithless, if you want to do things for your own end, that is so natural and easy. The road is wide, it's smooth sailing. It's just how human nature in a fallen and sinful world works. And this is C.S. Lewis's second point in the first two chapters of Mere Christianity. Number one, we all have a sense of right and wrong. Number two, we all go around violating our basic sense of right and wrong all the time. I'm no better than you. Because I'm a pastor, because I wear a cross, really. I promise, I am no better than you. Have you had this feeling? Have you had it this week where you thought, why did I do that? Why did I say that? What was I thinking? 
Oh God, when am I going to get out of this thing that I just keep doing? This is what it means to be a human being. I caught the end of a football game last night. It was between the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Cincinnati Bengals. These two teams don't like each other very much. Evidently, in the lead-up to this football game, both coaches had tried to you know, tell the players, hey, the refs are going to call a tight game, keep your emotions under control, we're going to play a clean game. With 20 seconds left in this game, which was dirty and contentious, with 20 seconds left in this game, the Cincinnati Bengals are leading by one point. Pittsburgh Steelers have the ball, no timeouts, they're about to lose. And the Cincinnati Bengals, after being coached to hold their emotions in check, incur two unsportsmanlike conduct penalties. One for a guy trying to take another guy's head off with his shoulder, and then subsequent to that, another unsportsmanlike penalty for a guy arguing with a referee and eventually like pushing and shoving the ref, the ref out of his place. If you don't know anything about football, those are bad penalties. They total 30 yards without the Pittsburgh Steelers having to do anything. 30 yards closer to their end zone, chip shot field goal. They had been out of field goal range. They win the game because of what the announcers on broadcast TV called disgraceful behavior by grown men. Now, they had been coached. They had been counseled. They had been trained. And yet, in the last 20 seconds of this game, these professional athletes could not stop themselves. That is what it's like to be a human being. You may not be a professional athlete. You may not make the money of a professional athlete. I'm both kind of, I saw that in horror and I thought that is what we all do all the time. Maybe you're a smoker and you hate the fact you smoke. Maybe you have a temper, and this week it flared up again, and you ended up blurting out things that you wish you didn't say. Right? I'm a pastor. I care about... I'm a professional, nice Christian. And some days when I go home after a day of work, it's hard for me to summon up the energy to care about Sarah, my wife, and my kids the same way that I care about people during the day. What is that? We disappoint each other. We disappoint ourselves all the time. I'd like to read for you uh, just a paragraph from the end of Mere Christianity, chapter 1. This is a perfect summary of the territory that we covered this morning. These, then, are the two points I wanted to make. First that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave a certain way and they can't really get rid of it. You can even try to get rid of it. You can try to say that you're just a law unto yourself. You still can't get rid of it. Secondly, that we human beings do not in fact behave that way. We know the law of nature all about right and wrong and yet we break it. And then this little sentence. 
These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves, who we are, our identity, and the universe that we live in. Now, if you buy this, okay, kind of shooting for the head here at the beginning, if you buy these two big ideas, please come back in the next three weeks because we are going to build uh, a tower on these on these little ideas, little big ideas, that leads to something beautiful and life-changing and eternally significant. You're not going to get it all this morning, okay? We're building a tower over the next four weeks. It's going to help us climb closer to the heart of God. If you do buy these two ideas this morning... I hope stirring in your heart is at least a little bit of this notion. If this is true, what do I do? What do I do about myself? What do I do about the fact that I keep breaking what I know is right and wrong? One option is to try harder. Right? We're still close to New Year's. You just try harder. That is not a good answer. What to do with the fact that a moral law of nature exists and that we are failures by its standard? We need someone. We need someone other than us who knows what's right and wrong and who always does and always did and always will do what is right. Now, this person, friends, has a name. His name is Jesus. Jesus knows the law of nature. In fact, he wrote it. Jesus knows the law of God perfectly. Jesus always does what is right and just. By every standard, Jesus, who not only spoke the golden rule, but honors the golden rule, and so much more. So in conclusion for part one, friends, simply Jesus is at the heart of mere Christianity. Simply Jesus is at the heart of mere Christianity. This is God's word for us today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, you have asked us to love you with all of our heart, and all of our soul, and all of our mind, and all of our strength. And we ask that as we engage uh, in this congregational book study in the next month, that you will especially use our minds, the rational and thinking part that you have gifted us with, um, to open ourselves more deeply to who you are and who we are and your love for us anyways. God, we yield all of our senses to you. And in this place of worship, we do admit you have written a moral law and we have broken it, and we want to more deeply find the way forward to how to live with you. 
We thank you that, in fact, you have made a way, and the way's name is Jesus of Nazareth. Help us follow him.